Hello and welcome back to Eldritch Girl. If you're joining us for the first time, this is where I serialise my novels and I do audio versions of my short stories and novellas. Um, this time, season three is The Day We Ate Grandad, which is my love letter to depression, grief, loss and people dealing with all of that. So this is for myself, but if it resonates, I'm so sorry. Um, and also just sending you all the support. Um, so if you haven't joined us before, um, I usually do content notes before each chapter. So you get the specific ones and I'll do a full run through here. So you can skip over it if you don't need the, the content warnings um, or if you find that they're spoilery. Just ignore this part. Um, but for those that need it, here we go. So The Day We Ate Grandad contains, in A to Z order, addiction and sobriety, so addiction to drugs, but also literal addiction to a romantic partner, which is Wes, if you know the story, if you know, you know. Uh, ADHD symptoms that aren't diagnosed or acknowledged by characters themselves who are unaware they exhibit them. Um, so that they, they, you find that people blame themselves and other things, memory processing issues, hyperactivity, lack of impulse control or all of that kind of thing. Um, so if that's triggering at all, uh, just be aware that that's kind of peppered throughout. Animal death. Um, it's a sheep for entrail reading purposes this time. Apocalypse threat. Eldritch god destruction, uh, obviously from the blurb, but also destructive behaviour from insidious addiction to an image. Arson and on-page fire, bereavement in complicated circumstances, very messy and destructive responses to grief. There's an on-page memorial service. Um, if you find that a bit soon or a bit raw, um, I'll warn you when that's coming up. It's later on in the book. Um, there are binges and their aftermaths um, with a minor who's 17 having to handle some of this um, with an adult relative and being placed in a carer slash parental role. There's body horror, there's body dysmorphia and complex feelings around one's own body, which can be read as similar to, to dysphoria. Um, child neglect, historic, mention of child sacrifice in a cult context, but no on-page depiction of this. Um, and I think Katie is the only minor in the book. Everyone else is an adult and Katie is 17. Um, there's a cult with family members being indoctrinated into it, joining out of trauma. There's an insider point of view as well for that. There's depression, uh, pretty severe. There's disordered eating in men that's gone unrecognised by others. There's um, dubious consent, there's uh, dysfunctional family and dysfunctional intimate relationships. Emesis, I will warn for that because I know a few listeners have requested a heads up if there's anyone being sick. Um, so fair enough, I'll, I'll give you a, a heads up in the chapters where, those, where that happens. Um, erectile dysfunction due to lifestyle, which is a combination of drugs, alcohol, poor diet, sobriety, journey, grief, constant stress not handling that well um there's family estrangement being cut off by close relatives after betrayal there are friendship issues there's gore which is quite graphic obviously there's inbred family as usual um there's insectoid fey creatures with spider-like and maggot-like attributes um which are involved in a semi-sexual encounter i'm so sorry uh <laughs> There's murder of close relatives by the main characters. 
There's parasites, parasitical imagery, worm maggot infestations in living flesh, graphic descriptions of wounds which may trigger entomophobia or acarophobia, parasitic dermatophobia or parasitophobia. There are queer characters who are messy, angry, abusive, soft, sweet, suicidal, fucked up, poorly treated, bad company, good company, deserving of more, deserving of a punch and at least one who's a Thatcherite. Um, there are relationship issues, complicated dynamics, there's self-harm, suicide ideation and suicide coercion. Suicide in the context of cult sacrifice, so um, giving yourself as a sacrifice, self-mutilation for various reasons, sibling death and sibling estrangement, younger sibling caring for older sibling, vice versa, sex frequently mentioned, a man wears comes on page during a non-sexual encounter with the thing um there's lots of references to sex lives kink sexual attraction to various things and people um and descriptions may trigger trypophobia so that's all i'm not gonna repeatedly give warnings for the depression and the mental health side of things just assume that that's going to be throughout the same with the erectile dysfunction disorder you know like all of that kind of stuff um i will kind of give a heads up per chapter just for the little things that i think people might want to be aware of if you want to request something when it comes up um just let me know and i'll try and remember to give you a heads up before the start and you can always just skip this section um, which will be quite a short section at the beginning of each chapter. And on to the credits. Um, so the theme tune is by Gemma Cartmel, now Gemma Dyer. Um, congratulations on your marriage, Gemma. And um, the illustrations in the books are by Tom Brown. Johannes Punkt is the editor for this book, uh, with early developmental edits by CJ Subco. And yeah, um, I'm just really happy to bring this to you. If you grab the physical copy, the book formatter for that was Ezra Arndt, um, who is very reasonable, great to work with, has put up with a lot of changes last minute um, and has had to manage me for deadlines on this one. So um, big thank you to Ezra. Um, and please, if you do get the book and you review it, please mention the illustrations by Tom Brown because um, that gives him a boost as well as an artist uh, and he is also available for commissions. So, yeah, I hope you really enjoy it. If if enjoyment is something you can get out of this, um, good for you. Uh, so here we go. I enjoy it. So, yeah, we're in good company, I guess. Um, so let's move on. Chapter one. Chapter 1's header, Beware the Ides of March, is from The Tragedy of Julius Caesar by William Shakespeare, Act 1, Scene 2. Chapter 1. Beware the Ides of March. 15th of March. Shards of his father's skull were still embedded between his knuckles. He blinked in the rancid smoke and worked one free, ignoring the sharp sting, and sloshed a little of his father's whiskey over the wounds. Pain blazed under his skin. He ignored it. Ricky watched the flames take hold of his childhood home without remorse or emotion. He stopped wasting the malt and gulped it back down from the bottle. And gulped it down from the bottle. His shredded back was numb, but that wouldn't last. Pain didn't matter now. Say a few words, Gran prompted him, and imagined Ogre scratching at the back of his mind. He's all as misremembering the right words, the memory of his father rejoined. 
He is a man of no account whatever. Ricky toasted them both in silence, listening to the rush and crackle of the flames in his ringing ears, and vaguely aware he was bleeding badly from places he couldn't see. He hadn't meant for this to happen. He hadn't meant for it to get messy. He shouldn't have lost his temper. But better him, better now, than they wait for the impending jaws of the thirteenth. If they were doomed to die, he'd rather do it himself than wait on his little cousin to do it for him. Should say something. What do I say? His mother's birthday was coming up. He drank down his father's best bottle, wondering what to get her this year, and realised he didn't need to think about that any more because he was watching her burn. He almost felt something then, but it slipped out of reach in a whirl of half-formed thoughts steeped in single malt. Llidwy llidw llwch i llwch, a voice said for him through the flames. He stiffened. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, I know what that means. What the pest is he doing here? Ricky was transported back thirteen years, guts in knots, joints frosted stiff, to the last time he'd heard that voice in the woods. He took another pull of the whisky to fend off the sick throbbing in his bones. Oh no, you won't catch me speaking that tongue here. Makes things real, then some mad-bearded old bastard shows up with fucking opinions. "'My prophecies are not opinions, and I didn't come to you when you were a boy for this,' said the voice. "'Did you not listen to anything I said?' Ricky snarled, pressing his hand to his side. Something sticky and warm smeared his palm and trickled through his fingers. Legs shaking, he sank onto the garden wall, ignoring the pain and making no reply. The man had appeared to him twice before, but Ricky had thought all that was done with. His farsight wasn't a gift of grandad's, it was something passed down to all single-born pendles, and they had a touch of the cunning folk in them still. Ricky dabbled in all that, wishes, elemental tricks, the other world, but he'd not wanted another elder telling him what to do with it. The first time the man had visited him as a child and told him where to find secrets that Gran would have ripped out of him with her bare nails if she'd known. The last time he'd been sixteen, rat-arsed with a skinful of cheap spirits, lying on the icy ground of the chase. For all he knew, he might have dreamed it. All the man had told him was he was wasting his potential, wasting the secret knowledge he'd been given, and he should pursue his soothsayer vocation over the promises of eldritch power. At least, that's how he remembered it now. Ricky had told him to fuck off. Rather Grandad's promises of his heart's desire, he thought at the time, than listen to another ancient voice in the trees and have the hard path of someone else's destiny foisted on him. Things came at a price, and he wasn't willing to pay. The blurred figure seemed to grow and straighten in the doorway of the burning cottage, his features impossible to make out. Ricky wasn't sure he was real, but even if he was, it didn't matter. He lifted his chin. You've got no power here. Not any more. Insolence. Ricky snorted. Insolence? This is my bloody... You're nothing here. I'm not a boy. I'm not afeard of you. If that's so, why is it you've avoided saying my name since we first met? Merlina Sylvestris, the mad prophet of the woods. Ricky shook his head, a smile writhing over his lips. Go haunt a battlefield, old man. The old world's gone. As he threw this out at the shadowy figure, the fire blossomed and raged, blowing out the windows on the upper floor. 
In his parents' room, Ricky saw the flailing shapes of his mother's undead doll daughters tearing themselves free of their nails and falling into blazing ash. He raised them a toast of their own and wondered how bad his back was. His father had slit him like a deer. He'd felt the claws grating on rib and spine. His mother had sliced him across his side, and that was dangerously deep. He could have said he was proud of me just once, Ricky said. Wouldn't have killed him. A dark snigger bubbled up within him, because, as it had turned out not an hour before, the opposite was literally true. Didn't even know I was hitting him, to tell you the truth. He released his side and worked a few more shards of skull free from his hands. Suddenly dizzy, he flicked them onto the grass. His hand was covered in blood. He needed to change. He could rip himself out of this flesh prison with its scars and wounds, assert his divine self, and rebuild a body good as new. Nothing happened. There was something wrong. Ricky reached into himself, and the usual writhing worms and anaconda-thick tendrils residing in his human passing frame were still and dormant. Something oily glistened on his bare skin, but he didn't know what it was. It wasn't just blood. Good thing I'm pissed or I'd be really bleeding worried. He giggled to himself. Think I've had it. You're too late. She can't see me like this. I've seen your destiny, don't forget. I know what's coming. You don't. Ricky grimaced. If you want to know if I'm sword in the stone material yet, the answer's still fuck off. He pulled his hoodie back on and the fibres rubbed against raw blisters and open wounds. The whisky was helping, but he wasn't halfway down the bottle yet. After that he'd need another, if he lived long enough. The mistress would be better off without him anyway. The cottage roof caved in and he didn't flinch as it crashed through the upper floor, hollowing out the old piece of family history with him as its only witness to its final demise. As if he'd read Ricky's mind, the figure raised his voice and said, "'Where do you think you're going in that condition? "'Your lady's waiting for you.' "'I'm going to see what Uncle David is lying around for the pain,' "'he announced to the burning cottage. "'Be right back.' "'Don't you dare. "'You ain't even real. "'You're a voice in my head. "'And your lady? "'Is she not real? "'You'll break her heart.' "'Ricky snorted. "'She's no one's lady, and she won't want me like this. "'Promised her I wouldn't set foot in her door with this in me.' "'He raised the bottle.' Promised when I was fourteen. I've not forgotten what I promised, and I won't. Sober up and go home. The voice was closer, and there was a shape of a storm-wild man framed in the flames. You need to clean those wounds before you can change. Ricky squinted, trying to make him out. Not yet. You have a destiny to fulfil, or I wouldn't be here. Do you think your grandsire will settle for being trapped in the outside forever? He's coming, Richard. It's nearly time, and you need to be strong. Go home. Piss off! Ricky forced himself up and knocked back as much of the whisky as he could in one go, then hurled the bottle at the figure. The remnants of it exploded against the cottage wall in thick splinters of glass. I am the god here. I have the power to open the gate for the old bastard, and I'm not bloody going to. No one controls the Pendlestone but me. Are you so sure the shrines won't work? Ricky scoffed, not dignifying that with a response. Nobody would dare perform those kinds of rituals without his permission. Get back to where you came from and leave me be. He headed off, stumbling away from the carnage and bad memories, feet dragging on the ground and leaving scuff marks through the undergrowth. He caught himself on a tree, smearing the bark with blood. Mine? 
he wasn't sure. His body was in agony, but his head was numb. He didn't want to go home yet. Oblivion was much more welcoming. Chapter 1, Part 2 Winter, 13 years ago He was drunk again. Still. One or the other. The man was watching him with wild eyes, resurrected from a long-forgotten childhood memory. The bottle tipped from his hand, empty, and the man's face held no judgment as it dropped to the tangle of roots and soil. Ricky hoped he would die this time, but he was too warm for the winter and there was something wrong with the ground. It was soft. The man was crouched some way away, and Ricky fought the thick, restful fog in his head to put one thought in front of the other, walking them towards a conclusion. He concluded, eventually, that he was in deep shit. For a start, there was frost on the ground. He couldn't remember how long he had been lying there, or when he had fallen, but he realised again that he wasn't lying on the hard, icy earth, but on something else that shouldn't be there, and he wasn't flat on his back the way he ought to be, given that his last vague memory was stumbling backwards and the trees spinning above him in a sickening dance. He had emptied his stomach of beer and vodka and half a stolen kebab, and was now resting against an oak wrapped in someone else's coat. "'How old are you, son?' Ricky blinked heavily and burped up something acidic. The question took a while to process. Six, sixteen. The man nodded. "'But you'd still rather be a puppet of your elders than see what I have to offer you.' Ricky didn't know what he meant. He would work it out later, but by then it was all too late to make new decisions.' Fuck off. The accent was hard to forget, but impossible to place. It wasn't English, wasn't Irish, wasn't anything remotely north. He knew it. What was it? Oh, of course. Shit me him again. Your thoughts are still as hollow as the rest of you, I see. How is Gerald? The man cocked his head. I suppose you still have him. Ricky tried to grab the vodka bottle, but couldn't make his hand obey him. Everything was slow, stiff. Time lurched away from him, leaving his head blissfully silent and clouded. "'Got any pills?' he asked. "'Not for you.' The man's question caught up with him, or he caught up with it. "'Gerald? It's fine. Made him.' "'I know. I remember.' "'Made him myself.' Ricky frowned, again noticing the coat he was wrapped in, the soft blanket on the ground beneath his heavy limbs, the frost around him that he couldn't feel. The man stood up in one fluid, easy motion. Ricky couldn't get a good handle on his features, whether he was old or young or somewhere in the middle, but the wildness of him stuck where the other details didn't. Ricky blinked a few times as the man towered over him. "'You're not ready yet.' He heard a tinge of disappointment there, and that triggered something visceral. Ricky snarled, but he couldn't stand. His legs disobeyed. I know you. Know you, don't I? I was a kid. Made me piss myself. That was funny, all of a sudden. Giggles erupted out of him, bubbles of mirth and booze that got trapped under his ribs and subsided into miserable hiccups. Ah, fuck. He slammed a fist into his diaphragm, but that didn't help. The man narrowed his eyes. Maybe I do have something for you. The man pulled out a small packet from his pocket, and Ricky registered the brown suit with a slow understanding that it was just one of the man's many skins, and this was not how he always appeared. The packet was more interesting, though. There was something in it. Ricky didn't care what it was. Open? He opened his mouth. 
It was a stupid thing to do. He knew better. He did it anyway. Something landed on his tongue and he swallowed without tasting it. The man gave him a cold smile and Ricky instantly regretted his choice. The clouds began to clear. His hiccups didn't go away and he became gradually aware of a dull ache absolutely everywhere. His ribs started to throb as if he had smacked into something hard and not noticed. His right knee was fine until he moved it, and then something screamed in the joint and shot up his thigh. He yelped in pain. His stomach was in knots of misery. Worse, his head was clearing. The clamour of anxious, waspish ideas jangled for attention from the periphery where the binge had pushed them and numbed their sharp, angry voices. Critics buzzed in his brain. Fuck you. Ricky raised his head and looked the wild man dead in the eye. Fuck you. Do you know who I am yet? The man folded massive arms, and Ricky couldn't remember if he had been that size before, or if his beard had been that long, or if he had always had a staff with him that stood upright on its own. You've had your day, mad old bastard, Ricky sneered, too angry to pay attention to this tiny sliver of self-preservation, swearing up and down that this was a very bad idea. I know you. I know who you are. The world's moved on. These woods ain't yours, and the chieftain sleeping in the barrows are fucking dust and bone if they ever knew you in the first place. He tried to stand again, but the pain stopped him. He thudded back on the blankets and sobbed back a scream. Piss off and leave me alone! The man shook his head. Getting there, he murmured. I can see there's something about you, boy, but you're not done yet. Did you read the books I told you about? Ricky tried to remember. The last time he had seen this man he had been about ten, and the memory was so hazy it nearly eluded him. You were in the grounds of the old house, he said slowly. You gave me a key. Not for nothing, I hope, Ricky hiccuped. I can fucking read. You even swear in this language, too, the man laughed, deep and rich, a booming guffaw that echoed around the trees. Ricky frowned. They were not speaking modern English any more. He couldn't remember when the switch occurred. What the fuck? Old English, very good, getting better. But you don't speak my tongue, do you? You haven't the backbone for the power in it, not yet. Well. The man raised bushy eyebrows. What secrets did you learn from those books that you don't want your delightful grandmother knowing about? Ricky growled, stomach growling too. I'm not your apprentice. I'm the one and only, the soothsayer. I don't need you or your books. The man's eyes crinkled at the edges. Oh, no? No, I suppose you don't. All right, soothsayer, prophesy to me. Ricky knew he had walked into a trap. No. No? The man pointed at a patch of ground. Read the omens in the frost and the leaves, or the pattern of ash from your own fire. Can you not even do that? Ricky stared at the spot the man was pointing at and saw nothing there. His third eye was closed and he was starving and sick and everything ached and hurt and screamed at him. No, he said again. You're so good you do it. The man shook his head and Ricky knew he had heard the panic in his voice. He swallowed hard. That's not fair. So what if I read your books? You told me I could, but I didn't say I'd be your apprentice. Didn't say none to you. He paused read other things as well. Looked you up. The man's eyes twinkled. Oh, yes. Read your dad's the devil. So you do know me. I don't believe in the devil. And yet here you are. 
the man looked him up and down. Pendle blood in your veins, the offspring of unholy rites and coupling, ready to transform when the time comes. When I first met you, you felt it then stirring inside. What's still there now, just under the surface, waiting to break out? Ricky chewed his stinging, chapped lips, wishing the man would shut up and go away. He didn't dare to think his name in case it gave him more power. He didn't know how to pronounce it properly, only the Latinized way. He wasn't real. Myths weren't supposed to be real. His head spun, guts gurgling as he pressed his back to the tree and tried not to panic. "'There is food here for you,' the man said, changing the subject and stepping aside. "'You're famished, lad. Better eat something decent.' Behind him was a patterned picnic blanket spread between the roots of an oak tree, and Ricky saw pies and cakes and a basket of juicy shining apples, so fresh he could smell the sweetness from where he sat. "'I can't,' he whispered, crawling forwards anyway, praying to Grandad it wasn't a cruel trick. "'Your far sight will come back in a few days. Eat. You will feel much better. And I will come back when it is time.' The man paused as Ricky forged forwards painfully on his hands and knees, consumed with desire and desperate hunger. He crammed the nearest thing into his mouth without caring to see what it was, and warm pastry and spiced meat danced on his tongue. He barely chewed before swallowing. He took a deep bite of one of the apples and the juice slid down his throat, thick and sweet and heady. "'You owe me, boy.' Ricky dropped the apple back onto the picnic blanket. It was too late to spit it out. He chewed slowly, each crunch of the flesh reminding him he'd royally fucked up. He looked up, trying not to cry. To his shame, his voice came out in a tense whisper. "'I'm just so hungry.' The man nodded. "'I see that. I grew the apples myself.' Ricky ached to finish the one he'd started. "'Pick it up, lad. It's not poison.' He couldn't resist it for long. He hadn't eaten properly for days. He wasn't allowed food with favour. It interfered with his ability to see the lottery numbers. But fuck that. Fuck the farsight. Fuck them all. It was already muddled anyway. He snatched the apple back and sank his teeth into it, juice streaming down his chin. "'Aren't you going to do me the courtesy of at least telling me my name, Richard Edwin Porter?' Ricky took his time, pointing to his full mouth and shrugging. He wasn't going to name the man. If he acknowledged who he was, spoke the name into the still air, like the man had just spoken his, there was no telling what would happen next. Already the weight of his own name, pronounced by this dark-eyed Welshman with the Roman nose, was settling on his shoulders like a mantle he wasn't ready to wear. If he said out loud this man was known as Melina Silvestris, because like fuck was he going to say it in Welsh, then all the power in that name would settle on the man too, and he would have to face it, and he couldn't take it back. He didn't want to see Merlin for who he was. Merlina Silvestris gave him a slow, cold smile. At bloody last! Ricky nearly choked on the apple. The bearded old bastard was in his head. I'll pretend I didn't hear that last part, Merlin said. Ricky tried not to throw up what he'd managed to scoff down, dizzy with recognition. The shifting form of the bard and prophet, not so much a man any more, swirled before his feverish eyes. Merlin wasn't just the Merlin of the modern stories of the French romances, but the Merlin of every version of every story ever told, every prophecy attributed to him, every conflicting detail and every exaggeration, every description and every legend all at once. 
He was the son of the devil, the baptised antichrist, the old mentor to headstrong kings, the shapeshifter, the young boy who could read the future in the earth and stars. He was wily and sharp, the author of laments and predictions, spanning the wide compass of time. He had been a waterfall, he had been the waves of the great sea, he had been the ancient oak and the great stag, he had lived many lives and hung between a thousand deaths, and Ricky was... nothing. Ricky held in a sob, shrinking in on himself. Something dark and equally ancient stirred in his bone marrow, reminding him it was there. "'One day you will come to me as a god, and I will treat you as you deserve,' Merlin told him. "'But that is not today. Your destiny is still before you.' He gave Ricky a look that was both piercing and quietly kind. "'Try and live that long, and for the love of God, don't fuck it up.' Ricky nodded out of sheer terror, the food of the mad prophet filling his mouth. Heart pounding, he swallowed the last of the apple and closed his eyes.' When he opened them, the picnic spread was still there, but Merlin had gone. Thank you for listening to The Day We Ate Grandad. Um, next week we're having a bonus interview with Lucy Rose, who's a filmmaker, um, coming out on Monday. The transcript will be going up on my blog and also my Kofi. Uh, then part two uh, of the main series, that will be on Thursday, lunchtime, British time. So look out for that. In the meantime, you can join my Kofi as a member if you want, or just leave a one-off tip if you're enjoying the podcast. That would be very much appreciated. And if you want to buy my ebooks through my shop, my Kofi shop, then I get the full amount of royalties instead of just a very small percent uh, from the various platforms that you can buy the book from. Please do buy the book and read along um, and I really hope to see you next time. Bye now.